What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty Bent. We're here on a Wednesday morning, another coffee podcast in a new studio, not Barstool anymore. We're at dig.com offices in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I have a really uh, thrown together interview here less than 12 hours ago, I think. I think we decided we were going to do this. I'm very excited for this guest. I actually just finished his book. I'm sure all of you uh, have heard of this book because I've talked about it on this podcast before. I'd like to introduce you all to Saifedina Moose. Saif, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Marty. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, pleasure is all mine. I mean, when I saw you at BitDevs last night, I was not ex- expecting you to say, hey, let's record at 9 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, and uh, I remember we said well, I was going to do it when I came to New York, but then here I was in New York, and you were in front of me, and we'd forgotten to arrange it, so might as well just you know, go and do it. We said we'd do it, so we should do it. I'm a huge spot in A&D guy, so I love, <laughs> that. I love that we're here now, but let's jump into it. You only have 40 minutes. You've been on your book tour, the Bitcoin standard. Uh, how's, how's the tour been so far? It's been great. I've uh, had a good time. I've uh, done, I think, six, seven cities so far. New York uh, was yesterday. Today I'm flying to Charlotte in North Carolina. Uh, it's been great. I've uh, met a lot of very interesting people and uh, seen, met, and gotten to know a lot of uh, cool Bitcoiners, so I can't complain. Yeah, so let's jump in to the Bitcoin Center. What I really want to focus on today mm-hmm. is my whole, so my whole sort of understand or not understanding my whole uh i think that people should learn the history of money i feel like too many people don't know what money is to begin with mm-hmm. and once you figure it out it's really like holy shit what the hell have we been doing the last 100 years so let's jump into the history of money and sort of how currencies have been debased i think my favorite uh example in the book that you used was west africa when they used the beads and then mm-hmm. the europeans came over and were like holy crap this is their currency let's just make a bunch and bring it back and inflate their currency yep so that's an example of, of money that was sound that became unsound over time, correct? And sort of what happened there? Yeah, so the story is that glass bead, glass making technology was pretty rare in Africa at that time. And so glass beads were very rare. It was very hard to come by these. Um, nobody's quite clear where they came from. Some suggest they were made in Egypt. Uh, some suggest that it was Phoenician traders who used to bring them along. But what we know is that about 500 years or so ago, in West Africa, these little glass beads were uh, used as money. And the reason they were money is the same reason that anything has ever been chosen as money, is that there's a mechanism to make it scarce. It's hard for people to inflate the supply easily. So for West Africans, in a few hundred years ago, having a glass bead was a strict what was a reliably scarce thing because it wasn't very easy for people to make more of it and so people who would store their wealth in these glass beads who would use it as jewelry or who would use it as um, payment would in the long run manage to preserve their wealth better than if they had uh, stored it in say perishable goods that uh, ruin quickly so this worked well as long as obviously glass beads were hard to make then Europeans show up on the coast of West Africa, and they find that those uh, they find that those beads had a much higher value in Africa, which of course makes sense because they were demanded in Africa not for any sort of industrial use, but they were demanded for their uh, for their monetary use. People were using them as a store of value, and so their price being much higher than the uh, uh, than the sort of industrial uh, market demand for the beads as beads 
meant that the Europeans could go back to Europe and get those beads for very cheap and bring them to West Africa. So essentially, they had their own money printers. and They were functioning like the modern central bank in Venezuela or Zimbabwe. It was trivial for the Europeans to get very large quantities of these beads. And so when a European ship comes from Europe to West Africa with all of those beads, they start using those beads to buy up the stuff that is in Africa. It immediately causes them to be able to acquire a lot of the uh, wealth that Africans have because uh, it's, you know, all of the, these glasses, these glass beads are very valuable. And so you start buying things. People don't know yet that the supply has increased. So the prices of things begin to increase and the value of the beads held by Africans continues to decline. And over time, Europeans were able to buy more and more and more uh, of the wealth of Africans till it got to a point where it it led to them buying slaves with those beads to the point where they came to be known as the slave beads. And that's, that's their name in uh, many places in West Africa until today. And I think it's a great story to explain just why the issue of uh, hard and easy money is really not optional. This isn't uh, Android versus iPhone where you can just decide, you know, okay, some people like Android and they think it's better, but I like my iPhone and um, I'm going to stick to it. Uh, you know, you can do that with formats uh, but w w or with uh, computer uh, programming uh, languages or platforms or whatever. But with money, it's not something that you can isolate yourself from because if the price of a... Um, if, if your money is easy to make for others, it'll be trivial for them to increase the supply, make more of it, and then expropriate your wealth effectively. They can just take the value that you put into your money simply by producing more and more of it. So that's why, you know, if just because you have a uh, money that you like doesn't mean it's very wise to stick to it. <laughs> so you freaks with your favorite shit coin out there. Exactly. Bitcoin is not optional. <laughs> so let's jump into that. Like, why do you believe that Bitcoin is the best money that we've ever found? You do believe that, correct? That Bitcoin is... I think so. I mean, so far, yeah, it promises to be the best money that we've ever invented. Um, I mean, it's still only been nine years. I'd like to wait another couple of hundred years before passing <laughs> this judgment. <laughs> definitively but it looks promising so far and the reason i think it's uh, it's promising is because for me if you look at the history of money there was a period up until say maybe a couple of hundred years ago about 150 years ago up until then the physical properties of things might have mattered in terms of what becomes money you know gold being not rusting and uh, uh, silver being hard to rust and corrode compared to other metals but if you look at it, if you think about it more recently with modern industrialization, the physical properties don't really matter because we can just make physical stuff with any properties we want, particularly now with plastics and so on. So, you know, we can make any metal or material in any properties, uh, physical properties, you know, whatever boiling temperature or uh, physical integrity, you know, stainless steel can be even better than silver in many ways. So the, I think the physical properties don't really matter. What I think matters now, what, what has mattered in the last couple of hundred years most is the economic properties. 
the reason that something is good as money or bad as money is just about their economic metrics, particularly how the supply interacts with demand. And so the best money that we'd ever invented before Bitcoin, the best money that had ever been used, I wouldn't say invented, was gold, precisely because it was very hard for people to increase the supply of it. And I don't think um, yeah, a lot of the gold bugs, they're fascinated with the um, physical properties of gold. And these are cute and interesting and you know it's nice to look at. But that's not why it's money. Uh, the reason it's money is that the of what I call the stock to flow ratio in my book, the ratio of the existing stockpiles to the new production. So gold is I gold was the best we had because uh, it's very hard to find gold. It's very rare and it's very hard to find it in large quantities, particularly when you consider the existing stockpiles of gold on the market, which are the uh, some of hundreds and thousands of years of gold production that have been piling up because gold doesn't rust. So, you know, the gold that was produced 3,000 years ago is probably still around somewhere today, maybe being worn by one of your listeners. You, you know, it's, it's, it's always been there. So it's very hard for people to increase the supply of gold meaningfully. That's the key metric. And so Bitcoin improves on that. It doesn't have any of the physical properties of gold. But it has the economic property that matters, which is that it's very hard for people to increase its supply uh, quickly. That's what I really think is very important about Bitcoin. That's why, and, and in a few years, it's going to start increasing at a lower rate than even gold. So there's that on the one hand, the economic property of the stock to flow. And then the second reason why I think it's the most advanced form of money is that it's, um, it's, it's uh, the, the, the ability of the Bitcoin network to clear about half a million transactions a day, and that's you know a conservative estimate of what we've seen Bitcoin do, assuming very few improvements, assuming no improvements from now on, assuming nothing is done to improve the uh, way in which Bitcoin operates, we still can do at least half a million transactions a day. Um, and so if you think about it, the ability of Bitcoin to offer final settlement anywhere across the world in about an hour, in under an hour, for sending any amount of money from anywhere to anywhere else in under an hour, I think that's extremely valuable. You know, if you compare that, if you wanted to send gold from here to China, uh, you will not do it in under an hour and you will not do it for a very small cost. It'll cost an enormous amount of money. So Bitcoin's ability to have this many transactions and to offer final clearance in, um, in under an hour for about half a million transactions a day means that the base layer of settlement in Bitcoin can be far more decentralized than the base layer of central bank settlement. And that's, that's the key um, point in the subtitle of my book when I call the Bitcoin standard as the decentralized alternative to central banking. And this is, I think, distinction that I make between people who think, you know, many people think that Bitcoin is going to replace bank. And I, and I don't think that's the case. I think Bitcoin is going to replace the central banking system of settlement and that's where it's uh, really uh, that's where it's really strong yeah let's get into central banking mm -hmm. that's something that completely disenchanted me from like finance so I worked at a hedge fund and a uh, futures fund specifically all you freaks know that I've said that too many times um, but uh, had to deal had to deal with currency markets and part of my job is write commentaries and uh, basically describe how the fund performed against market movements and a lot of that research was following central banks, their announcements and they were constantly setting targets, never hitting them 
saying that QE was going to, to provide some some uh, benefits on the back end that never came to fruition, and it seems like they're just sort of going at a whim, throwing shit at the wall, and seeing what sticks. Like, they really don't have any idea what they're doing, I would say. Um, how how did it get this bad? I mean, it's a, what, it's a 105-year problem now? Or, yeah, yeah, US Central, yeah, 100 Central Bank started... Uh, U.S. Central Bank to start what Federal Reserve was 1913. 14, yeah, 13 signed the act, and 14 yeah, it came like Christmas into Christmas Eve, 1913, or something. Yeah, like something that. like that. Um, how yeah. did they get this bad? Well, is John Maynard Keynes about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of blame to go around. Keynes definitely is uh, part of the story. I wouldn't, I don't, wouldn't really blame Keynes, and I say this in my book. It's not like he was this, you know, genius who came up with these uh, ideas of Keynesian economics. There's nothing new or uh, um, interesting or intelligent about this garbage economics that they teach at universities. It's the oldest trick in the book of every kleptocratic government in human history. It's just how to rob the peasants to enrich the kings. So Keynes really didn't invent anything new. He just uh, and, and, you know, it's not like he shaped the course of policy in the 1930s or that he changed the way the governments functioned. If you look at the history, um, you know, the U.S. was already doing Keynesian economics back from the days of Hoover. Uh, and uh, FDR came and uh, increased the kind of Keynesianism that they were doing. And this idea that Keynes's work is what changed course is complete fiction, uh, along with the many other fictions that they teach in uh, econ textbooks. So the, the, the point is that, you know, they were already following this path of um, inflation and spending as a way out of the uh, uh, crisis, which was, of course, actually exacerbating the crisis. But Keynes came and provided, if you want to call it intellectual justification, although I think this term intellectual in Keynes is a huge <laughs> stretch, but, you know, if that's what people call intellectual these days, then, yeah. So he, he provided the sort of big word justification for the kind of simpletons who want to believe this garbage. But um, I think, you know, the, the, the roots of the problem just go back to the early 20th century. And it was, it was a time in which the, what Hayek calls the fatal conceit began to dominate, particularly in U.S. politics. Uh, the progressive movement was, uh, their view of how an economy should function was essentially that you know you have this uh, brahmin uh, upper class of uh, business leaders and government officials who are all you know they go to the same universities and the ivy league universities in the northeast and they're all buddies and intermarried and they run businesses and politics together and you know this class uh, viewed its role as a um, leading um Sort of like an arbiter for the country. Like, or yeah, an arbiter and also sort of like the upper caste that will uh, lead not just the country, but the whole world. I mean, it was just the idea that, you know, if you think about the foundations that these people started in D.C. to influence public policy, if you think about the attempts to spread democracy all over the world and building the League of Nations and then later the United Nations, I mean, it was all part of this drive towards progressive uh, world government, having the world being run by uh, New England progressives who uh, know what's best for everybody. And so that includes everything from the American Medical Association deciding what kind of treatments are legal and what kind of treatments are illegal. It includes everything from the central bank deciding how much money needs to be in the economy rather than it being a, uh, uh, an emergent process uh, between that emerges freely on the market. And the, the entirety of 
U.S. politics and later European politics started to head in that uh, more statist direction, and central banking is no exception. Yeah, and what it's sort of led to is this uh, culture of conspicuous consumption. And another favorite part of my your book uh, is when you sort of tie fiat currencies and the the runaway uh, balance sheet of these central banks to the sort of ills that we're seeing in society. Like right now we have opioid crisis in the country. Gap between the rich and the poor is the biggest it's ever been. Or not the biggest it's ever been, but it's pretty big right now. Um, heart disease, all-time highs. People are buying plastic shit at dollar stores. Like there's a ton of waste out there. And you would yeah. attribute this to the fiat currencies, correct? Yeah, I think I, I think there's definitely a connection. Um, and I think, you know, the... the, the I've yet to see convincing counter arguments to this. I've had people tell me, well, it's just a narrative fallacy, which I think is the cheapest form of uh, argument. Because, you know, if you think, and you can call anything a narrative fallacy, but, you know, if you, if you, if you can't provide a better explanation for how these things coincide with one another, then you should probably stop reading all of these rationality blogs and start reading actual economics, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's, it's an entire industry of people who just refuse to ever learn anything and refuse to ever understand anything because everything is, you know, correlation, not causation. And uh, um, you can always just keep picking holes in things. But the, 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 the point of education, the point of thinking, and the point of reasoning is to try to understand things and not... Um, you know, try to find the best explanation that can explain things. And in my opinion, um, I think it's, you know, the economic mechanism is inarguable in the same way that uh, you would look at any sort of price controls. If there's a price control today where the government says, you know, you can't sell apples for more than uh, 10 cents a pound, any economist worth his salt will tell you that will cause shortages in apples. It's just what we know. We've seen it happen in many places, and we know the effect of it. So... What would be the impact of manipulation of the interest rate? I mean, you know, we, we can think of the, int well, we can't think of it. it is, the interest rate is the price of money. It's the price that you pay to borrow and it's the price that you receive if you lend, you know, with some uh, margin plus or minus. That's what the interest rate stands for. So if an interest rate is artificially lowered, if the government mandates that the interest rate should be lower than what it, was, what it would be in a free market, then there's no question that that at the margin that will cause you to want to save less and to want to consume more if interest rates are low it's easier for you to borrow it's less rewarding for you to save and so i don't think that you could possibly explain the drop in savings and the rise in debt without looking at the price of savings and debt so i i find it to be very unconvincing when people try and um, dismiss this away. Um, it's, it's the price. It's just like with the price of apples. What happens if you restrict the price of apples? Well, producers are going to produce fewer apples because they can't afford it. And consumers are going to want more, so there's going to be a shortage. And I think the same thing happens with uh, savings. Savers are going to save less when interest rates are low. Borrowers are going to borrow more. And so where do you make up this difference? Well. Central banks make up the difference by inflating the money supply, by bringing in new money supply into the, uh, in, into the uh, market, which causes, effectively, causes prices to rise and causes consumption to rise, and effectively um, eats up the capital stock of society over time. 
And that's the really dangerous thing if you think about it. You know, civilization is the process of accumulating capital. So reducing the capital stock is the exact opposite of civilization. It's, it's what destruction of civilization is. And it's why, you know, Keynesian economics, we can laugh at uh, how silly the economics is and how idiotic the theories that he has is. But it's, it's not a laughing matter. It's extremely, extremely dangerous. It's, it's nothing less than a recipe for destroying the capital stock of a society. In other words, a recipe for decivilizing society, which you know, might sound fun for the kind of generation that thinks uh, you know, watching Fight Club is cool and you know, bringing all these buildings <laughs> down. But trust me, you don't want to see what it would look like if we have a reversal of civilization. It doesn't mean you and your friends going around in a Mad Max world and torching things for fun. Uh, <laughs> it means like famine, disease, stuff like that. Exactly. Right? It means dying at 27 from uh, simple preventable diseases. It means, uh, you know, a lot of bad things. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. So I love that you you brought that up, that it's sort of de-civilizing de society. Uh, because yesterday, stat came out. This is what I wanted to jump into. Uh, this stat didn't come out yesterday, but this made me think of it. So... The average American, 40 to 60 percent, the number varies depending on what publication you read it, read it from, cannot afford a $400 emergency expense. So there is no savings. Like people, most people don't have any savings. They're living paycheck to paycheck or living on the dole. And this is not, uh, this is not sustainable in my mind. And then yesterday, the stat comes out, uh, inflation is at like eight-year highs in America, the CPI. So what I wanted to talk about was the CPI in particular. Like this is what yeah. these central banks use to, to track inflation. But if we really jump into the CPI and the history of the CPI, the underlying variables that go into it have changed many times throughout the past. So there's sort yeah. of a uh, Orwellian, would you call it like an Orwellian yes. manufacturing of... of mathematical Orwellianism. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's a great exactly. way of putting it, yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a ridiculous measure. Uh, CPI is uh, fundamentally is completely invalid as a measure. And so you, you, can't, you, you can't look at a number like that and think that it is even mathematically valid. And any mathematician worth his salt will look at it and tell you this is Mickey Mouse math. It's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous as a concept because, um, you know, it, it pretends like prices are just this thing that you can measure that you know gives you an idea about what is happening to the price level as if you know it's just this um you know this 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 force of nature that we're measuring the price level and that's ridiculous because the price level what they measure is determined by what people buy and sell and that in turn is determined by the prices in other words your choice to buy something and pay a specific price for it is not just about um it, it doesn't just set the price. The price determines your choice. What I mean by that is, you know, um, my favorite example for doing this and a big reason how the CPI was constructed is if you look at food prices. So today, today I think they don't even include food prices. In, uh, I think they have rough rice if you're, if you're looking for a food state. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Okay, so they, yeah, I've got the rough rice and <laughs> that tells you what kind of stuff they need you. Uh, they, they'd like you to be eating. So if you think about it, in the 1970s, the reason for the construction of the CPI was because inflation was increasing very rapidly. And so they thought, you know, if we start measuring it and putting in a bunch of economists to try and control it, then we could stop that because that will solve the problem. So, you know, if you're... Um, 
it's 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 like trying to think that you know your alcoholism will be solved if you just had a better uh, <laughs> if you drink white wine instead of red wine or something. yeah or or if you just you know get newer glasses or something <laughs> like that um so so if you look at it in the 70s the prices of everything were going up and it wasn't because of some uh, f- some outside forces it was because the government was in, engaging in massive inflation particularly after 1971 when the uh, money supply was decoupled from uh, any sort of redeemability to gold. So the price of everything was going up, not because things were becoming more expensive or food was more scarce, just because money was becoming more abundant. Money was becoming easier. So the price of everything rises. So, you know, if you think about what you could eat in 1970, if you look at the price of a steak in 1970, you'd see that you could probably buy a whole steak for maybe five bucks. Um, around that time, which is the same steak you'd get today for about 50 bucks in a restaurant. So you would think, well, you know, prices have gone up about tenfold. The CPI would show you that prices have gone up much less than that because it's only gone up by, say, about on average something like 2% per year, 3%. So you add it up. uh, I don't don't know the exact numbers right now, but uh, roughly speaking, it'll be something like it's doubled over the past 40 years, which isn't that bad. You know, $10 instead of $5 is not that bad of an increase over 40 years. It's just a couple of percent per year. Most people can put up with that. It doesn't really matter if you look at it from the CPI. However, what the CPI does is effectively that as the as the price of the stake goes up, the ability of people to buy the stake goes down. And so instead, they replace the stake with inferior uh, substitutes. So instead of eating a fine ribeye, you start eating burgers made out of, um, you know, the cheaper cuts. I love burgers. There's nothing wrong with them, but um, you know, the the price of a burger is usually cheaper. So if you move from eating the five dollar steak to eating a five dollar burger because the steak is now worth twenty dollars or ten dollars, the CPI doesn't capture that. The CPI shows that the prices are constant. You used to have your lunch for five dollars. And you're still having a lunch for $5. But, you know, okay, moving to burgers is not a problem. But the next step, which is, you know, after the late 70s, which is where the dietary guidelines come in, the dietary guidelines were formulated with an economic perspective. You know, the idea was how do we feed these people (laughs) at the lowest cost? How can we provide food for society in a way that is affordable? And the answer, of course, is sheep cheaper grains and corn and high fructose corn syrup that's how you can produce what passes for food (laughs) at a low cost and and the correlation of like that the addition to the food guidelines and the rise in heart disease is pretty yeah it's pretty stark you'd have to be a government paid nutrition scientist to not (laughs) notice it and they're the only people who don't notice this um, and other than that, I mean, you'd have to really, really, really um, use very powerful um, rationalization mechanisms to try to wish this away. It's it's astonishing how the rise in disease, uh, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, and all of those things coincided perfectly with the beginning of people being scared away from eating animal fat and moving towards eating industrial sludge that they were told is food instead. And you see, the movement towards this industrial sludge is because as 
industry is advancing, as uh, as technology is advancing, it's becoming cheaper and cheaper to produce things that are industrial. So if you don't care about nutrients in the food, if you just care about including drugs like sugar in the food, then it's, it's a great way to make cheap food, industrialization. So you can get rid of inflation simply by telling people to stop eating you know, the harmful, terrible ribeye steaks that give them heart attacks, according to your government scientists, and start eating heart-healthy canola oil and <laughs> soy burgers fly, fried in canola oil, which is, I mean, disgusting sludge that you shouldn't feed to your pet if you had uh, a pet, I mean, let alone feed to human beings. Canola in particular, I mean, it's, uh, let's not get into all of that. Well, I think we can jump into this from here. So, like, this is my big... My big thing is that like people are just have been born into this system, and they're just like, oh, this is the way the world works. Like, this is yeah. this is what's correct. Like, you're like I, I was a '90s kid. Like, I grew up eating Fun Dip, where you literally stick like you lick a you lick a stick, stick into a bag of sugar, and put it in your mouth. Like, that is like <sighs> yeah, I know, what I grew too. up on. Luckily, I've cut I've cut sugar out as much as possible. I, I'm trying to go full carnivore. It's hard. I'm trying to cut out carbs as much as possible. But the same. Uh, with money and with food and diet and stuff we're sort of born like hey this is the way the world works and you're just going along and not until you're 18 to 25 and you start questioning like oh wait a second like maybe this is wrong like what do we need to do because I'm a strong believer in that we need to get more people to understand what money is so I think everybody should read your book but absolutely beyond that like what it's it's a huge rewiring of, of the mental landscape of, of the world right um, I thank you. I hope so. <laughs> um, that's that's a that's a gr- that's a good compliment. I'll take. <laughs> yeah, no, it thank is, you. and it, like we need, and that's one thing. Like we, I feel like we need to do as a society is like rewire brains. Like just because people people were born into this situation, they're like, hey, this is the way the world works, and it's really hard to convince people that like, hey, maybe this isn't the way the world should work yeah i mean it's uh, it's it's if you think this is why you should read history because uh, otherwise you get the feeling that uh, what you're experiencing today is just the norm and in many many ways what we have today is the norm today but it has not been the norm throughout all of human history and human society and uh, you know it's 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 usually been the exception and the effect of it is pretty uh it's, uh, it's usually history shows us the effect of periods like this is not uh, fun. So, you know, the, 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 I mean, I just came to the U.S. Every time I come to the U.S., I'm, I'm, I'm blown away at just how much obesity there is in this country. It's really, it's, it's really mind-blowing. Nowhere else in the world that I've been is like this. It's, well, maybe the, the Gulf is a little bit like that. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf is uh, closing, on, closing in on the United States in that avenue of world leadership. But it's really astonishing. And, and, it, and it's not normal, obviously, and it's not healthy. And it's directly a consequence of the availability of cheap junk food. And it's not just the availability of it. You know, you could make cheap junk food available, but people don't have to buy it. I think you can't underestimate the effect that government guidelines have had, you know, 30 years of telling people in the media, in the n- universities, uh, everywhere, just people being bombarded with, don't eat bacon, don't eat ma- meat, it's not good for you, meat causes cancer, red meat is uh, associated with, and, and you look at the horrible study behind this stuff, I mean, 
it's it 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 almost makes Keynesian economics look respectable. Well, not quite, but <laughs> I mean, it's 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 really on that level. It's 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 absolutely idiotic. I mean, the, the Ansel Keys study on which these dietary guidelines were based. I mean, no statistics student in high school could fall for this kind of garbage studies. It's seven countries and you know one chart with three outliers, I think, or something <laughs> like that. It's just complete garbage as uh, uh, methodologically. And, you know, but it, 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 it had the support of industry behind it. Junk food has much higher margins because, you know, you're manufacturing sludge. And then if you can just get the government to approve this as food, then it's very, it's very profitable. Meat, on the other hand, has very low margins. So the, this industrial agriculture behemoth that has taken over the world has thrived on this inflation, has thrived on the idea that people are trying uh, that government is just trying to make people not realize that their uh, money is losing value by replacing their food with junk and the result is massive massive health crisis yeah now so what's it like in lebanon i'm actually uh, like uh, i mean everywhere in the world is catching up to the u.s unfortunately i mean the u.s is the world leader and everywhere else is catching up so you see obesity increasing and I don't know, maybe this is just uh, me uh, trying to project things, but I think this current generation, I think the last few years I've noticed things have gotten significantly worse in Lebanon. And it could be, this is me, my, uh, this is my sort of uh, Western price nutrition reading. If anybody's interested in me reading more about nutrition, if you want the sort of alternative view, if you're looking for the Ludwig von Mises <laughs> antidote to uh, the uh, mainstream nutrition. So just like in economics, we've got John Maynard Keynes as the sort of figurehead of everything that is wrong. In nutrition, there's a guy called Ansel Keys, who was the figurehead for uh, the anti-fat and anti-meat hysteria. But the perfect antidote to that, the Mises to that, is a guy called Weston Price. I highly recommend a book of his called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And it'll show you the impacts of nutrition and malnutrition on, that it's not just, you know, if you don't eat well, you get um, skinny. It's, it's really not that malnutrition. Obesity is, a, is, is part of malnutrition. And the effects of malnutrition are intergenerational. So it's, and that's really, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's a shocking thing to read uh, when you see the examples that he illustrates. And there's another excellent book called Deep Nutrition by Kate Shanahan that also uh, applies these ideas of Western price uh, to um, modern uh, societies. So I highly recommend these. Um, and I think my explanation of what's happening in places like Lebanon is you know, junk food and restaurants, junk food restaurants came into Lebanon in the early 90s. And I think now is the time when you're beginning to see the... Uh, real effect because now we have children who were born to parents who were you know I mean the, now the adults who are 20 years old were born to parents who had started eating uh, uh, yeah junk before or dipping uh, sticks and fun dip in the 90s. exactly I mean before that during the 70s and 80s Lebanon had civil war and say what you want about civil war at least it kept the Twinkies and fun dips out <laughs> of the country <laughs> for a while so it could be that you know now now Lebanon is is regressing more. You're seeing far more obesity and far more uh, deterioration of people's health. All right, staying on Leb Lebanon. Let's uh, the man who wrote the foreword to your book, Nassim uh -huh. Taleb. Yeah, we're uh, we're huge Taleb disciples on this podcast. 
he would consider himself a Levantine, correct? Is that? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So what? Uh, I would imagine you have the inside scoop. Like, is he a full? Like, is he fully sold on Bitcoin yet? Is he? Is he a believer? Uh, I wouldn't say so. I, I, I'll be honest. I don't think he's. Um, I mean, he's not a no coiner. He's not a bitter anti Bitcoin hater. He likes the idea. He's supportive of it, but. He's just, I mean, and I kind of understand this, he's just not uh, been uh, interested enough to study it up close. He's interested in um, he's interested in it because of, you know, what he mentioned in my foreword, the idea that it constitutes a um, an alternative to the monopoly of money that elites, or what he calls the intellectual yet idiots uh, class, um, have so he likes it in that sense, but no, I can't. He's not. He, he's not technically uh, studied it closely enough um, to be a hardcore Bitcoiner. But you know, uh, can work on that. <laughs> and we're gonna end it on that. You gotta get. You gotta get to the airport. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any like parting note you want to want to imbue on the crown here? Um, I'll just say I think. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm glad to be here. I hope uh, your readers enjoyed this, and I hope they uh, check out the book and provide me with any feedback on this episode and on the book. And thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, that's all we have for today, freaks. Peace and love. All right, bye-bye.